Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast. This is episode number 11, recorded August 27, 2011. I'm Kyle Cronin. I'm Jason Zalas. And I'm Nathan Greenstein. And our special guest today is a longtime Apple user, speaker, and author with over 40 books published, Tom Negrino. Hi, guys. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, um, it's it's always I've always wanted to have you on the show, and up until now, we really it's it's just been tough to even have the three of us do a show together. So, you know, I, I think we're finally ready to sort of branch out and get guests on. But um, you know, ever since you said that you were interested a few months ago, I've I've always sort of had you in the back of my mind as someone that I, I wanted to talk to. So I'm really glad you could you know you had the time to do this. I appreciate that. Thanks. So, um, well, so, so you're an author, basically. Uh, yeah, I've been a full-time writer since about 1990. Uh, I actually started writing in 1986 for a now-defunct magazine called Mac Guide, and then I went on and started writing for Macworld magazine in 1987, first doing reviews and then feature stories. In 1990, I became a contributing editor for Macworld magazine and stayed as a contributing editor for the next 14 years. My first book was, I I, I had contributed to a few other books, but the first book that came out that I actually consider mine, and I consider a book mine if my, my name actually shows up on the cover, that book was 1994, a slim volume for Q called Upgrading Your Mac Illustrated. It was an utter failure. Um, And um, since then, uh, I've done a bunch of books, mostly for Peach Pit Press, sometimes, and well, in fact, often, with my co-author, wife, and Stack Exchange valued associate, Dory Smith. And most of the time, I've been writing for uh, Peach Pit Press. Our two biggest selling books for them are uh, Dreamweaver Visual Quick Start Guide, current version of that is uh, Dreamweaver CS5, Visual Quick Start Guide. And our latest book is also our largest selling book overall, which is JavaScript Visual Quick Start Guide, which is in its eighth edition and just came out a few weeks ago. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. So that's number 41 for me since 1994. Sometimes I can't believe it either. (laughs) Kind of, you were talking about the your your original employment and uh, Mac Guide and whatnot, and it just kind of the with all of the, uh, I I don't know if there's quite a better word, but with all of the tales reminiscence and, I guess I would say corporate eulogies that people have been posting with the uh, resignation of Steve Jobs as CEO, a lot of people have been talking about things in the past, and that's kind of brought up Apple's uncertain future that almost decade uh, ending in '97 when Jobs actually came back. And it's just really see. It's just really interesting to see that you started in what people consider the, the dark days of Apple. But it's great to see the fact that you've flourished ever since then. Actually, you got your your timeline just a little bit off in that, the dark days of Apple didn't really start until into the '90s, and I could, just like you know, so many of us have one of those T-shirts that said, "I was a Mac user when Apple was doomed." Um, <laughs> But uh, I don't actually own that shirt, but I should, I, I should go buy one. Back in the 80s, I actually bought my first Mac in um, 1984, October of 1984. The Mac had come out in uh, January of 84. And one of the interesting things to me 
when I think back about the that year is is how a television commercial, in this case the original Macintosh nineteen eighty four commercial, actually changed my life. I looked at it, I said, Wow, this is really cool. I wonder what this is about. And later that year, I decided to go uh, freelance as a video editor. This was in the days before non-linear editing. And so I, I needed a, a computer of some sort so I could do spreadsheets for clients, you know, for, for estimates. And so I decided to buy a Mac. So I picked that up in, in October of uh, 84, along with the only spreadsheet that was available, which was Microsoft Multiplan the uh, little-known predecessor to Excel, which wouldn't come along for another three or four years, I think. And uh, then, you know, pretty promptly in um, early 1985, I, I was doing fairly decently as a video editor. I was cutting music videos and, and uh, industrial films, things like that. And then in 85, the film business went smack into one of its usual periodic recessions, all my clients dried up, and I basically had nothing better to do for six months or so than play with my Mac and learn how to use it. So after six months, I said, well, geez, I got to get a job. And I had started running the uh, local chapter down in Hollywood at the time, which is where we lived then, of the local Macintosh user group, the Los Angeles Macintosh group. And it met at a uh, computer store, and these were the days you guys have never seen where computer stores that weren't from Apple actually had full-time people to be support folks. So I became the Macintosh support guy at this computer uh, computer store, SOS Computers in L.A. And that's kind of how I became a Mac guy, kind of fell into it by mistake. About a year later or so, I fell into writing again by mistake because uh, a friend of mine had been asked to write for MacGuide, and he said, so they're looking for people, and I know, you know, I'd, I'd basically never written anything of, of any importance, but he says, you know, they send you products for free, and, and you write your opinions, and then they pay you money, and you get to keep the product usually, unless it's hardware. So I said... Well, that sounds like a good deal to me, and ended up doing that. So those first years were actually pretty strong, and things didn't really start going south really until, what I would say, the early to middle 90s. Yeah, you know, easily the, the, the middle 90s, you know, during the Michael Spindler as CEO years and things like that. I mean, there was a time when Macworld Magazine was this huge magazine. It was almost an inch thick with ads and had something like 500 pages. And, uh, you know, obviously things have, things have changed a lot since then. But Steve was forced out of Apple. They went through a succession of CEOs, first Scully and then Spindler and then, I, then Emilio, I think. And then I believe Steve came back. But the big years of the Mac were obviously the ones after Steve came back and, and did the, you know they came out with the iMac. But there were a lot of good years before that, too. So what is your sort of favorite, like, pre-OS ten software or hardware or, you know, something from, you know, 
well, I, I really, I, I don't have much experience using that stuff, and I'm just sort of wondering if there's anything that maybe you miss or you wish uh, OS X had or, or still existed today. You know, OS X is so much better than the original system, uh, you know, and up to System 9 that there's really, you know, really no comparison. It's just way, way better. Things don't crash, uh, or ne not nearly as much. When they crash, they don't take down your whole machine, which they used to. You can actually run more than one thing at a time. There was a point for a very long time where there just wasn't any concept of multitasking in the Mac operating system. So you were running one program at a time, then you were quitting it, and then you were running something else. And I think that that was the case up through, what, System, system 7? Something like that. And so pretty much everything about the, uh, the, the OS X era is better in one way or another, mainly because the operating system is so solid, which isn't to say that there wasn't some, some truly fabulous hardware before that. Probably my, my favorite bit of hardware from the pre-OS X era would be the SE30. It was an amazing machine for its time. Uh, I think I bought mine in 1987. We kept it in use as a mailing list server, and I believe that we finally retired it in something like 2002. <laughs> That's a lot of years. Yeah. Hmm. You know, OS X had been out for a very, very long time, and we were still running System 7.5.6 or, or, or something like that. But, you know, for a mailing list server you hardly need any computing power. And this thing fit great in our closet. You know, we have a server closet here. And it could easily spit out 10,000 emails a day. So we used to run some mailing lists and finally ended up moving them, you know, elsewhere. But that little SE30 put in, you know, yeoman service for a very, very long time. It was the first really affordable Mac also that had, it had an expansion slot in it. So that was the first Mac that I had that I could actually put an, uh, an expansion card into and use a color monitor. I know the idea of not having a color monitor is, is, is uh, you know, sounds as though, yes, and we actually chiseled the pixels onto the screen uh, ourselves, <laughs> uh, you know, to you guys. But remember that a lot of the genius of the original Macintosh was that it could do terrific black and white, you know, well, grayscale graphics, you know, on that, you know, little nine-inch screen. And for me, with the SE30, being you know being able to have a 13-inch color screen in addition to the internal 9-inch uh, black and white screen was really a revelation. It's kind of funny you you mentioning black and white specifically just kind of brings back to mind the the fact that black and white and clean colors have been something that Apple's done multiple times. I, I've worked with dumb terminals in the past, and whenever something goes subtly wrong with a display and you just have these really, really sharp orange and green colors, that they just they just hurt. They just do not go well at, with extended periods of time of watching them. I, I actually couldn't even tell you what my very first computer was, but it was a hard driveless, two, five-and-a-quarter floppy drive IBM PC of some sort, I believe, and the orange screen just... And the parallel that I'm drawing is that when the iPod came out, it was one of the first mobile devices that actually had a clean screen and not like the, I don't know, the old Game Boy Green. 
Yeah, it's it's another example of, of how Apple always sweats the, the the small design stuff. Their attitude was, if you're going to put buy something from us, and yes, I I, I bought that original five gig iPod. The interface to it has to look reasonable. It has to, it has to be something that that people would actually want to use. And sure, they could have used some of the crappy LCD stuff that they had at the time, and that you know we saw on things from competitors. But the the whole point of the iPod was that it was the MP3 device that yes, maybe it didn't have quite as much capacity as some of the other MP3 devices, but it was so much easier to use and it was usable by civilians as opposed to people who really wanted to learn that stuff. Yeah, it's sort of interesting looking at the, the original iPod design and, and the hardware and, and how it was, so, it was so modest compared to you know some of the like raw capacity of something like a, uh, like a Nomad that people had just dismissed it and... Obviously, you know, history has proved that the, the, the track that Apple took in sort of bringing those relatively geeky devices to like a, a mainstream consumer base was actually a smart decision and not trivial or dumb as they were sort of derided for. Especially considering the first one was Firewire and not even USB. Exactly. Although USB, to be fair, wasn't nearly as widely deployed, I think. And that was the years of... USB 1.1, I think. So uh, USB was really slow, and FireWire, one of the selling points, in fact, of the original uh, iPods was that we can suck over all your music from your Mac to the mobile device in a fraction of the time that things like the Nomad could. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you point out the Nomad as as the example because I bought one. Uh, That was one of my first purchases after I first got a job and actually saved up for it. And uh, the 6-gig Nomad, and that's about how big my library was at the time, was a USB 1.1 device. Uh, I think USB 1.1 was rated for 12 megabits yeah, but second. With, but but with a real th- uh, uh, throughput of, what, 5, I think? Yeah, probably. I, I don't think Explorer ever even showed it at the time. And so that was, that, was, that was me back in the early 2000s. That's what I was using. I remember wanting to show off, show off the Nomad to my buddy, so I after I picked it up, so I started syncing my, uh, I told him, hey, I need to take care of something, then I'll be over. Three hours later, hey, I'm on my way! And <laughs> it was just, yeah, 12, 12 versus 400, and that, in that given year, was very dramatic, and even still to this day, Firewire is technically speaking, you know, rated for over two times USB 2. 800 right. versus uh, 480. Right. So I'm just curious, uh, how did you find Stack Exchange? Um, you know I had never really heard of Stack Exchange until January of this year I was at Macworld Expo with my wife Dory Smith and uh, we were having dinner with the editor-in-chief of Peach Pit and it was pretty late it was you know 10 o'clock or so and Dory said I have to leave dinner because I have a business meeting and the other two of us at a business meeting this late. She says, yes, I'm meeting a guy back at the hotel. And I said, let me get this straight. You're meeting a strange man back at the hotel? <laughs> and 
she said, yes, I am. And, you know, I want to talk. He's going to give me some business cards for this, this site called Ask Different that I've been working with. And I had actually not known that Dory had been working with Stack Exchange at that point for quite some time. And, in fact, was a mod on the uh, public beta of Ask Different. Because, because we have separate offices, we don't always see what each other is doing. And she just hadn't mentioned it to me. And so I said, well, okay, fine, great. So I finished, so Dory left, uh, went off to dinner, dinner. And I finished up dinner with our editor, walked back, back to the hotel, and ran into Dory in the lobby, talking with the, with a, with the aforementioned strange guy. And the strange guy turned out to be Jeff Atwood. Dory had set up a meeting with him, and unbeknownst to me, and kind of unbeknownst to Jeff, but hoped for by Dory, it was actually a job interview because Dory had wanted to get a job at Stack. And the meeting went very well, and they did eventually, uh, in fact, I think the next month, in February, uh, offer Dory a job. Oh, wow. Yeah. So after I found out, you know, I mean, I met Jeff, I said hello, and, and we talked for a while. Uh, and then he had to leave to uh, get Bart back to his side of the bay. And after that, I, I uh, said, well, you know, if Dory's been spending so much time on this, uh, I guess I should probably pay attention to it. And took a look at it and uh, started answering questions because I can't stop myself from doing that kind of thing. <laughs> and that that's pretty much you know you know where I am now. I mean, what do you think the strengths and weaknesses of of Stack Exchange are as a as a as a platform or as a community? I don't really have a list of weaknesses off the top of my head. I think the the strengths are are pretty evident once you actually understand the, the nature of kind of the Stack Exchange concept, which is these are Q&A sites, th these aren't discussion boards. I don't like discussion boards that much because they tend to get taken over by the loudest voices in the room. And the loudest voices in the room, in my experience, are not the ones that are the most accurate. They're merely the loudest. And the thing I like about Stack is that it rewards people who are smarter and who have who are more accurate and it disincentivizes trolls i think that the concept of uh, that 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 uh trolls and griefers are a uh, you know perennial problem and i know that the mods and the employees at stack the on the community team do a lot of work to uh, try to solve that problem and, and try to prevent that from from becoming a problem and I think that largely they succeed. But for me, the main point is that I can Google a question that I have or ask it myself on one of the stack sites and know that there's a pretty good chance that the answer I get back will actually be useful to me. Uh, if I go to some of the other Q&A sites, I, I won't mention them. Okay, I will. Um, <laughs> uh, like Yahoo Answers. You know, horrendous, uh, horrendous answers to questions, not vetted in any way, no concept of, re of reputation. So you get idiotic answers to questions, and yet 
the answer of an idiot is taken as valid there as the answer uh, uh, of an expert. Yeah, it's almost like like a game for some people where someone will ask a really stupid, stupid question or someone will post a really, really stupid answer and then they take a screenshot and they post it on Reddit and everyone laughs. And yeah, it's it's kind of like a broken windows kind of thing where I'm, I think it was New York City where basically they were trying to reduce the crime rate by reducing the appearance of crime. And so like, you know, a broken window invites other people to break other windows. Right. And yeah. so if you don't yeah, if you don't see any of that on Stack Exchange, you're not really tempted to to make any. Right. And I'm actually thrilled to death that the the general philosophy of stack management is that no, some people shouldn't be in our community and we need to get rid of them. And you know, these are the malicious people. We're not you know, you know, simple disagreements are always okay. Certainly, we've seen in uh, you know the, ver- the, the various chats and, and metas that honest disagreement is not only tolerated but welcomed. But there's people out there, you know, the trolls and such, who get off on on tormenting people. And Stack seems to have a an attitude of, nope, you don't need to be here, or we don't need you here, uh, and that's good. I suppose that the idea of closing questions because they're not appropriate questions, I guess I see this much less than, than, than you mod types do, where when a question gets closed, somebody will come back and say, help, help, I'm being repressed, where's my free speech rights? But, you know, it's not about free speech. It's about making the community useful to the largest amount of folks. Right. I mean, if we had a bunch of junk on the front page, people like you would probably not be very enthusiastic about participating. Uh, Exactly. I'm a busy guy. I do Mac stuff professionally. And, you know, my hat is off to to folks who can moderate this stuff because, honestly, I'm just not that kind of – I just don't have that kind of patience. You know, and the fact that you guys do it on a volunteer basis, you you know, good on you. So you, um, you're actually at uh, Worldcon. Is it is it Worldcon or is it Renovation? Well, it's the world. It was the World Science Fiction Convention, which is colloquially known as Worldcon. And this particular one, because it was in Reno, was called Renovation. Oh, uh, Reno. Yeah, and they're called something different every year. For example, the the one next year is in uh, Chicago, and so that particular one happens to be called ChaiCon Seven. Uh, because it's not, it's not Shukan? Uh It's Chaikon. I, I, okay. It's one of the things I learned at the at the closing ceremonies when they did a uh, the handoff from um, Reno to uh, Chicago, and it lo- it, it's already looking to uh, to be a uh, pretty interesting convention. But Worldcon in Reno was a really interesting, really fun experience. If you're a science fiction fan and you've never been to a Worldcon, I strongly recommend it. I also recommend that you you buy your memberships as far as advanced as possible because it's cheaper the farther in, in advance that you buy it. And you can always buy a supporting membership now, for example, I think for fifty dollars, and that that gets that that can be converted at full credit to a attending membership should you actually decide to go to Chicago next year. Now, Dory and I were there partly on Stack Exchange business, 
uh, Dory was wearing her Stack Exchange hat the whole time. Stack sponsored the green room for the program participants. So that mainly means uh, writers, authors, editors, artists, you know, that sort of thing. And we got to give away lots and lots and lots of fun Stack Exchange swag. A lot of the stuff that you, you can find in the Stack Exchange store we gave away. So we gave away those cool retractable Sharpies, which, you know, writers and, and artists who have to do a lot of autographing, they just love those things. T-shirts, stickers, water bottles, that, that sort of thing. And just tried to get the word out about the two sites we were actually pushing were uh, writers.stackexchange.com and sci-fi.stackexchange.com. Oh, that seems pretty neat, sort of a, an organic way to, to get people interested in the sites. Yeah, we made up a big banner beforehand that we hung in the green room, you know, sponsored by Stack Exchange, and just tried to make people aware of of what Stack was and how it could help them professionally. Since we were doing the the green room specifically, we wanted to try to reach influencers, so we got to talk to some, well, in fact, a lot of a lot of authors and some of the Hugo nominees, which was fun. For those of you who, who aren't in really into the science fiction world, the Hugo Awards are kind of like the Oscars of the science fiction and fantasy world. So one of the things that each Worldcon does is present the Hugo Awards uh, at, a, at a big ceremony. And this, I believe, was the first year that they streamed them live via Ustream. Uh, and, I, that, and that recording is still available, I believe. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I saw your post on the Stack Ex- uh, Sci-Fi Stack Exchange blog. I mean, we should also mention that during Worldcon, you were also blogging about Worldcon on the Stack uh, Sci-Fi Stack Exchange blog. Yeah, we did a bunch of posts there, and that was really fun to do. And we actually still have a few more posts still in us. I came back from the convention with you know, kind of your, your average convention crud and have kind of felt sick for the last week or so. Because, you know, as we all know, conventions are dens of pestilence. But I've got some audio to, um, to edit from the person who runs a science fiction podcast called The Incomparable, which is available on iTunes. Uh, oh, I did... I've, I'm, yes. Jason Snell, he talks about uh, movies and, and stuff like that. Right, yeah. Right. Jason Snell, who also happens to be the editorial director of Macworld Magazine and a colleague of mine, r- runs The Incomparable and they talk about books and they talk about music, uh, uh, movies and TV shows. It's really a fun podcast and it's available on iTunes. I assume there's a fair amount of cosplay at Worldcon. There is actually. And one of the posts I did on the Sci-Fi Community blog was about costumes, specifically the Hall costumes. Uh, you know, there's a big event at Worldcons called the Masquerade, where people go, where, where the professional costume types and the semi-professionals go all out and they do tableaus and it's amazing but a lot of fun is just you know the stuff right there in the hallway we got there on tuesday to uh register a little early it was the the con didn't actually start until wednesday and walked into the convention center we're kind of wandering our way around like oh are we in you know are we in the right part of the place and 
you know, when you see a Klingon walking towards you, you know you're in the right place. <laughs> so he walks by, you know, I smile and nod, nod to him. He says, Kabla! And, um, you know, that was kind of the first costume experience. Lots of great costumes, though. It's worth reading my blog post because we have pictures. Our favorite one was a woman who was dressed as the Doctor Who TARDIS. And she had a a dress that looked like the police box. Actually had, you know, even had the the little sign on the front of it that said, public call here. And she had a, a light on top of her head that she could make pulse with you know you know as 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 the TARDIS does when it moves from place to place, and the really cool thing was that when the light pulsed, you also heard the heard the TARDIS moving sound. Yeah, so it was it was it was awesome. Yeah, I saw that photo. It's it's not a small light. That must have been tough to have on your head all that time. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see how she did it, but 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 more power to her. The the thing that I was really surprised, and apparently there was uh, a Navi in the uh, masquerade, but we were expecting to see see people dressed as, as Navi in the halls, and I never saw one. And I, I can only imagine that walking around in a loincloth covered in blue paint has practical issues that were just not very overcomable for um, for, for people who wanted to do that. <laughs> How can you cosplay in Nevada and survive for any period of time? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. There was a uh, we were staying in a uh, in the non-con hotel, the Pepper Mill, and they gave us a little sheet when we when we came in, and one of the the things on the sheet was something from that 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 said specifically. No weapons of any sort, fake or not, when you're walking through the casino. And it's against the policy and perhaps the law to have your face covered. So you couldn't wear, you know, if your costume included a mask, you could not walk through the casino. Does that include, like, uh, like Klingon makeup or? I don't think so. Basically, you, know, you, you had to be moderately recognizable. And I would have to say that, you know, somebody dressed in a Klingon costume is going to be pretty recognizable no matter what. <laughs> but they didn't want people who were completely masked to walk through the casinos for security reasons. I mean, I, I do have to say, though, between the Klingon in the hallway and the casino floor, I pretty much would say that the casino floor was more surreal. <laughs> You know, I I can handle a Klingon in a, in a, in a hallway a lot easier uh, than, than I can the uh, you know all all the flashing lights and the buzzers and the uh, you know all all the psychotropic design of of a casino that's designed to get you to you know be there, stay there, and spend money. And the noise and the hoopla and all the goings on and and oh my God, the cigarette smoke. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, I live in California. And we're just not used to that stuff. So do they, is it like a policy that you can smoke in any casino or? Uh, generally speaking, casinos floors in Nevada are, are smoking areas. Uh, they do have small non-smoking areas, but they're not really, you know, there's so much smoke there that you're kind of smelling it all the time. 
you know, uh, you know, if you walk through the casino, you are going to smell smoke. And they have changed the laws there so that food service areas are non-smoking, which is good. Previously, there were smoking and non-smoking areas. But, for example, we, we ate several times at a deli in the, uh, the main con hotel, the Atlantis. And the edges of the deli area were right next to the casino floor. So the smoke from there would waft into the deli area. Uh, that does not sound like fun when you're trying to eat. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Uh. <laughs> so uh, you said you, you sponsored the uh, the green room. Did you, were you, did you just give out random stuff in the hallways and to just random people, or were you like specifically targeting like authors and stuff? Well, in the green room itself, the green room is restricted to people who, are, who were speaking on the program, you know, who were who program right. participants, which included certainly all, all the Hugo nominees, many, many authors, people like me who I ended up being on the program mainly because I asked to be, and I asked to be on one panel, and suddenly I was, uh, you know, and, and when I got the thing back from uh, an email back from the program committee i was on three so okay fine i can do that the panel i actually wanted to be on was making it as a full-time writer because i thought that as a non-fiction writer who's been pretty successful at it for more than 15 years that i would have a perspective on it that you know some of the fiction writers didn't and that really turned out to be a terrific panel i'm actually curious about that um what sort of software do you use to write? I mean, what sort of you know, um, tools do you use? I pretty much use the tools that my publishers want me to use. So that's almost always Microsoft Word with style sheets that they provide for their particular series. For example, when I work with the uh, Visual Quick Start Guide series for Peach Pit Press, they provide me with a style sheet that has a uh, floating palette that includes all the styles that... that they use in the creation of their book. And then they have a tool that can um, take the Word file with the styles in it, bring it into InDesign, and then it replaces the Word styles with InDesign styles, and it makes it a lot easier for them to create the book. By Word styles, you're talking about things like the predefined static text, this is what you should see, uh, variable text, this is what you should replace, and then footnotes and sidebars, all that kind of thing? No, I'm, I'm talking about the actual styles, things like normal and headline one and headline two. The publishers create their own styles, you know, body text, numbered list, list head, things like that. And uh, they'll create their own styles that have you know, very specific formatting. And then the, uh, those are the styles that flow through into equivalent styles in InDesign. Do you do the, the migration to InDesign, or do they do that on their app? It depends on the author. We, we tend to be more just writers, and so we don't do our own InDesign stuff. We just give them the Word files and usually the TIFF files for uh, picture captions uh, for for pictures and of course we also the the captions for the uh, figures go in the word file and then they have a whole production department that puts it all together but the all important question are we talking office for mac or do you actually have a virtual machine or actual windows setup laying around you know the interesting thing here is that i'm a professional writer 
but I am a crappy typist. <laughs> so I do a surprising amount of my work, especially my book work, on my Windows machine using Word for Windows, but more importantly, using Dragon Naturally Speaking. <laughs> so I speak out the text, it shows up on the screen, I'm tagging it you know, with styles as needed uh, on the Windows machine. Since Dropbox came along, it's awesome because I can simply keep all my project files in Dropbox and they're immediately replicated onto the Mac. And in fact, when I have to shoot screenshots, uh, for example, our Dreamweaver book, most of the screenshots on there are uh, uh, from the Windows version of Dreamweaver because our research showed that most of our readers were Windows users. So I'll just shoot the screenshots on my Windows box, save it into the Dropbox folder. It, autom it shows up a second later on the Mac where I use Graphic Converter on the Mac to deal with all, all of the um, cataloging and renaming as, as needed. And if I need to you know, crop things or mess with the colors and stuff, I'll do it that way. So for, for more specific things like outlining, do you use um, special software for that or just do all that in Word? I think that Word's outliner is pretty awful. So <laughs> Word is not really an optimal to tool for long-form writers. And one of the things that I've been playing with both on Mac and on Windows is Scrivener. But it just, I, I haven't quite gotten my head into it yet. But I'm, I'm continuing to try, especially for stuff that doesn't require word output like the stuff for Peach Pit. But in terms of outlining, I really don't think that there's anything better on the Mac than Omni Outliner Pro. And I've been using that for years, love it to death. I'm really a, a big fan of, out, uh, of outlines. I've written a bunch of books on presentation software both uh, PowerPoint and Keynote. And I think that there's no substitute for uh, creating a presentation first as an outline and before you ever look at a slide and then creating your slideshow from your outline rather than the other way around. So in your, your Dreamweaver book, you've got mostly screenshots from Windows for Dreamweaver, but then I noticed a lot of Firefox for Mac and, and that sort of thing in, in some of the other screenshots. Is Firefox your browser for web development? Uh, no. Generally speaking, I prefer Safari. I like Safari. I think that there are things about it that drive me a little crazy. But Firefox has never quite felt to me like a real Mac program. There's just things about it that they just don't make me feel you know, especially comfortable. There's good things about it. I, I think it's a fine browser, but my primary browser on the Mac is Safari. My primary browser on Windows, however, is Firefox. I've played around with Google Chrome. I think Chrome is fine, but I kind of think of it as certainly a secondary browser. It's a secondary browser. It, it, it's a, actually a tertiary browser on the Mac for me because I would go Safari, Firefox, Chrome. And on Windows, I would go probably Firefox, maybe Safari, maybe Chrome, then Internet Explorer. Speaking of uh, Safari, uh, I'm sorry, speaking of Firefox's integration, Mozilla generally agrees with you given the fact that they still to this day are continuing to maintain Camino. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's true. I, Plus, you know, it seems to me that, that the Mozilla folks have just gone insane. You know, <laughs> in, in, you know, in, in the past few months, this whole concept of we're going to go from version three to four to five to six, all within the course of a year, that's madness. Yeah, they took trying the, to be they like Chrome. The, yeah, they took the best part of Chrome, but they're they're presenting it so awfully. I mean. So, I, given that I haven't used Firefox in the last couple major versions, this obviously anybody can answer this if they know firsthand. Does the automatic updater actually start doing major releases now? I seem to recall that when 4 came out, that 3, any version of 3 would not go up to 4, and you would have to manually hit their website to download it. I would hope that they do that. That was the case between 4 and 5. You still have to use the separate download. But you're not sure 5 to 6? No, I, I don't remember doing <laughs> that. I know I've upgraded, but I forgot about it yeah this so, whole this whole manual step of all that extra thing especially the the weight that firefox carries the i i will admit i'm being very i've gotten very spoiled lately i don't download dmgs uh, well that's that's totally not true so much software still comes with, with dmgs but i guess between the proliferation of mobile and how many things are taking are uh, taking up that use plus the mac app store um, and then there are some people like Panic that just ship the, uh, the the app bundle in a zip, so you extract it and then you're done. You can you can move it. You don't have to. You can just execute it right from that point. Uh, I, I really like the Panic stuff. Transmit is just an awesome FTP program. Coda is a great program as well for uh, for web development. And one of the things I especially like about Transmit, well, in fact, all the uh, Panic stuff, is you launch it. You do nothing, and it's if it noticed that you need an upgrade, it's just downloading it and, and doing it in the background. It might it will tell you that it's doing doing that if you ask it to, but it doesn't pop up that Sparkle dialog that says, "Hey, do you want to update?" Because as long as you've given them, given them permission to just do it that way, it just works. Yeah, people that have cleaned up the Sparkle experience will say really really have it down pat panic software is a good example of that github for mac is another one that's really good and then obviously obviously chrome isn't sparkle but there i have no complaints of their updating process whatsoever and it happens so often yeah i'm more i'm more uh I, i i get more tripped up by the fact that I keep my browser open for a long time at a time and with a little the little indicator over the preferences button just kind of I I don't like unread notifications and so I'm like well I want to I need to keep working on this but I want to upgrade because I want to see what changed and back and forth but yeah people people that have the updating processes worked out have them in such a good way for for nowadays yeah I mean if Firefox wanted to copy Chrome's rapidly climbing version number they should have done it all the way. Like the fact that they're saying, "Oh yeah, we're gonna do a new version number every what is it, eight weeks, something like that." But then you know, every time that they come out with a new version, they're like, "Yeah, you gotta upgrade to this new version." And when they post it on their blog, um, with Chrome, you don't to the end user, you don't actually even have a version of Chrome. You just have Chrome, and then just Chrome is just continually updated by Google. You know, every time you launch it, there's probably it's probably been updated since the last time you launched it, and it's just. Uh, it's so transparent, and it just it completely removes the need to even think about what version you're running. Yeah, and when I think about how web developers still have to worry about how they uh, about which versions they are targeting for web browsers, it, it seems to me that Mozilla, the Mozilla folks, are just deliberately annoying 
web developers who have been some of their greatest assets and cheerleaders over the years. Yeah, that's actually really funny to think about because for the longest time, I know I know in my day job, the Internet Explorer compatibility list was 6, 7, and 8. And now with Firefox, it's not unreasonable to think that somebody would need 3, 5, actually, I think it went to 3, 6 before it ended, 3, 6, 4, I don't remember if there was another subversion of 4, but to have 3, 6, 4, 5, and 6, that's the, the, they've already exceeded IE's record. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's quite a bit unreasonable considering the time span that we're talking about here. Yeah, what, six months? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, madness. So. An update system I really don't like is the Mac app stores. And I understand that Apple wants to look at everything and approve everything. But I think even then, there are a few unnecessary problems. Like, I got Coda on the Mac app store and... Don't know why I did that. I'm wishing I hadn't because when Lion came out, Coda still wasn't quite compatible. It was crashing a lot or a few bugs. And oh, you know, Panic says on Twitter, okay, we've got an update out. Everything should be working now. And then three weeks later, it gets its way, th- makes its way through the Mac App Store and I can install it. But of course, to know that I have an update, I have to open the Mac App Store the the application on my computer it doesn't it doesn't even tell me when i'm using the app like you know something like sparkle which is not ideal but i think it generally works all right you open the app and you get a little dialogue time to update okay click here to download it but with the mac app store you have to open the application and then if there is an update you go to the updates tab and enter your password and update the apps it's step backwards i think that's pretty interesting uh it, and it's not it's not insurmountable because i uh when sparrow offered people a way to buy it off the mac app store in transition i took the plunge and made that decision and they just drop in a little notification saying that a new update is available on the mac app store and they push that after they actually see it in the update list for them for themselves and now that I think about it, we just talked about how seamless Panic does it. And in that particular regard, yeah, the Mac App Store is pretty jarring. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's it's. I've always liked Panic Package Manager's software update. You know, it's never allowed third party, so we could never really leverage that capability. But something to kind of point me in the direction of the App Store when I need it by the individual app that needs it, I'll update it and any others that happen along the way that don't already have this notification framework in place. Honestly, I'm surprised that that wasn't one of the features in Lion. And I won't be at all surprised if it shows up in one of the revisions of Lion where just as software update will pop up periodically if you tell it to, so will the Mac App Store. Yeah, especially considering the push service that's built into Lion. I see it every once in a while when I accidentally roll over uh, uh, Little Snitch's process reports. Yeah. An interesting thing is that I swear, in one of the pre-release builds of Lion, when you turn on the computer, the Mac App Store would, in the background, do its little check and then add a notification badge to its icon. So I could see the Mac App Store in the dock, and I hadn't opened it yet, but it would have like a little 3 next to it. Just like, you know, say say a chat program or something, it's got a 3 in its icon to tell you you've got 3 unread messages. The Mac App Store would have a 3 on its icon to tell you you've got 3 updates to install. And now it only shows that badge once you've opened the app and it does its check. But I swear in one of the pre-release builds, it checked automatically as soon as you turned on the computer. And that seems like a logical thing to keep, and I'm not sure why they got rid of it. That or I'm imagining things. 
it may return. It may be part of the. Uh, they may end up wanting that to be part of the functionality, the messaging functionality that will be part of iCloud. Mm. You know, it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. One month away. <laughs> well. One month away, in theory. That, that's our current estimate. Speaking of iCloud and whatnot, we haven't even covered any mobile devices you have and use regularly. Well, we were trapped into BlackBerry contracts, so we missed the uh, first iPhone. So we ended up with the uh, 3Gs and then jumped from those to the iPhone 4s. When the iPad came out, I bought one immediately, and Dory, who is not the early adopter uh, in the family, I that, that would be me. In fact, there's a uh, blog post. We were also one of the earlier earliest bloggers. We Our, our, our blog, BackupBrain.com, has been around since 1999, and Twitter has won out a lot in, in terms of you know little things that we post. But we're still posting there. But there's a an old blog post on Backup Brain where when the iPod first came out, I said, this is great. They're going to sell, sell a zillion of them. And Dory's counter po- uh, point post was, eh, I'm just not feeling it. Um, <laughs> and the same thing happened with the Kindle. And um, pro- I'll probably be in trouble for telling that story. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, so... Uh, after the iPad came out, and I had it for a while, uh, I had it for a month or so, and Dory picked it up and played with it and says, and was like, oh, I, I, I would kind of like one. So I, I bought her an iPod, uh, sorry, an iPad. Uh, so we still have iPad 1s and iPhone 4s. I'm expecting that we will probably end up with iPad 3s next year if it turns out that it really is next year. And the iPhone 4s will last us until the end of the contract. So uh, I would expect that we probably won't, won't move on until, uh, what, sometime next year? We, t- we tend to make things last, even though we're often early adopters. Both my Macintoshes here, the ones that I use personally, the Mac Pro from, from, is from 2008, and I'm really itching to, to swap it out, but I'm, I'm just waiting a little. And my MacBook is also from 2008. It was one. Of, it was the uh, one of the first unibody aluminum MacBooks. It's a 13 inch, and I would really love to change that over to a 13 inch MacBook Air. But I think I will probably wait, you know, for another few months. So did you did you get a chance to install Lion at all? Yeah, uh, I, ins- I I tend to use the MacBook as my upgrade immediately test bed machine and so i i install pretty much anything new onto the macbook because because most of the time it sits on the kitchen table and is my home email machine and things like that email and web serving machine on the mac pro i have a separate disc with lion on it but i'm still running snow leopard and I commend to you folks a uh, article written by Chris Breen over at Macworld just yesterday saying why I haven't yet switched over to Lion on my production machine. And uh, a lot of the points that Chris made I th- are really valid for me. For me, I like Lion a lot. I think it's a, uh, I definitely think that it's an advance. But for people with mice instead of trackpads, 
it's not necessarily that fabulous. Launchpad for me, I mean, obviously I'm a power user, so I already have solutions that will launch things and launch them much more elegantly and quickly than Launchpad. And that would be either LaunchBar or Quicksilver. Mission Control, I find to be awesome when you have a trackpad and less awesome when you have a, uh, a mouse. When you're using a mouse, for me, I'm getting more utility out of uh, spaces still. I like full screen apps, but I don't need them so much that they're worth changing over to right now. Plus, I make money with my Mac, so I'm pretty set in, set in terms of my workflow. My workflow works for me. And to disrupt it for Lion right now, especially since we're still in the early days of Lion, when they're still working out the bugs and they're still rubbing off the crunchy bits, to me it's not really worth changing on my primary machine yet. I'll fully agree with you with uh, Launchpad there. I think when we had our Lion discussion, we all talked about the fact that Launchpad just doesn't add anything that we don't already have a good solution for. I'm a, I'm an Alfred user. Nathan, I believe you were too. Um, mm-hmm. Launchpad doesn't change anything except that you don't have to open Finder and click applications, but it's still it's just it's just dodgy you know whatever whatever page you open it up to isn't necessarily going to be where you need to be and the inconsistent sorting makes it worse that that part has never flown very well with me so i i am curious why you find mission control more more usable with a mouse because i use mission control basically i i've used it with both the trackpad and a mouse and there's really i find the mouse to work fine before you before you answer, you got to realize his mouse has like nineteen buttons. Well, I only use like three of them. I only reala- I only use like three of them for for launch or for uh, mission control. Okay, well, I myself have a, a a five or six button mouse. I use an old Microsoft IntelliMouse Explorer, which I like so much and fits my hands so well that when Microsoft stopped making them, I bought extra used ones off of eBay. I just wait for them to die, and then I throw them away and pull pull the next one out of the box. But I just find that I think that gestures, that mission control is kind of intrinsically set up for use with gestures, and I don't find that gestures translate well to the mouse experience. We haven't talked about things like the natural scrolling and the disappearing scroll bars, which are a crime against nature as far as I'm concerned. Um, um, I mean, especially when you're on a web page, you want to know where you are on the page, for goodness sake. So, you know, the idea that I have to move my my cursor just to find out where I am on the page, that's just, just so wrong. But, um, yeah, I guess I, I'm not really, uh, you know, making it big big with the uh, Apple fanboy comments today, huh? But uh, <laughs> no one will accuse me of being a complete Apple, slavish Apple fanboy because I, there's so many things I don't like. One of the things I, I, I did do in preparation for Lion is I bought a Magic Trackpad, and I've played with it some on, on the Mac Pro, but I'm not ready to switch to the Magic Trackpad in place of my mouse. And as it happens, it's difficult for for me to have them both sitting on my keyboard tray, you know, just from a, a space issue. I can see see switching, you know, doing it more and using more gestural sorts of things with um, 
uh, lion in the future. But from, for now, the, the uh, magic trackpad is just kind of sitting off to the side, weeping quietly to itself. <laughs> you're absolutely right with mission control and gestures because your only other outlet is to manually essentially scroll through them with a keyboard shortcut. And I... or, or, or I guess hot corners as well works. Oh, I haven't touched Hot Corners and Lion yet. Wow, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Oh, I, I use those. I just bind my, my center, my scroll wheel button to Mission Control, and that works real well. And then for, for stuff in Mission Control that would be gestures like the, you know, it, it kind of creates a cluster of windows for each app with the, the app's icon kind of on top of it. You can expand the cluster of windows to see larger previews and get them less on top of each other. That's a gesture, but it's also just spin the scroll wheel. And and stuff like switching switching desktops, which used to be spaces in mission control, you can use a gesture or you can option click on the preview for the space. So I it is gestures geared and it's it is more convenient like that, but I have found that that with a mouse with at least with uh, three buttons, it's it's certainly workable. If I recall correctly, when we had our Lion episode, I made the point that writers and authors seem to be the ones with the problem of the missing scroll bars. And I thought that nobody really disagreed, that none, that the three of us here didn't really have a problem with it. Oh, actually, the, it was the case with you, Nathan, that they turned back yeah. on since you don't have any, since you don't have an Apple-branded mouse. Yeah, I when I'm using a mouse I, with a scroll wheel and stuff, I like being able to see the scroll bars since I... I tend to click on the scroll bar for where I want to go instead of, uh, you know, like with a, with a trackpad, it's easier to just give it a flick and go somewhere quickly, but I get tired of spinning the scroll wheel, especially I don't particularly like the scroll wheel on my mouse, so I just find it easier to click in the, the little track for the scroll bar. Yeah, but you know, you guys probably litigated this during your Lion episode, but to me, what's the, what's the real benefit of taking those, uh, the arrows out of the scroll bar? I don't really see, you know, if I want to, you know, jump up or down one line, I could always click there and, and do that. And it seems to me that Apple has removed the capability of, of precision scrolling from me, really for aesthetic effect and not practical effect. And, and to me, that's, that's not a good user interface decision. We, I was actually in chat last night. Myself and another uh, another participant, B Mike, were kind of talking about this at a really high level, not really drilling down into it. But in that point alone, the the range of precision that the trackpad plus the natural scrolling gives you, I can scroll at a finer amount than what the down and up arrows would do, and I can scroll incredibly more more reliably in my opinion than I could with the ability to actually grab the uh grab the the wow I don't even know what to call it the icon in the scroll bar track and move it to where I want to be in the document you know um, as as a professional documentation writer that thing is called the thumb I never knew that see you see we've all <laughs> learned good, something today and I know I know a lot of this is born out of the fact that my computer is a MacBook Pro, and so since the Magic Trackpad had not previously been getting any love in our house, we took it. I, I took it into work, and I use it as my essentially desktop, my uh, work desktop setup. But I don't have precision problems. I I don't have precision problems with the the normal trackpad use uh, manipulating the mouse cursor, and I think I have a immense ability to scroll exactly how I want it to 
because there's obviously, you know, the fact that a subtle two-finger movement will almost, almost on a pixel level. But natural scrolling is really a good name for the term. You know, one of the things that I did with the MacBook was I turned off the invisible scroll bars. So now they're visible. But I left the natural scrolling on because I wanted to get used to it. And I have to say, I, uh, you know, I have fallen for it. Several of my friends who had been reviewing Lion said, okay, you're going to want to turn it off immediately because it will seem like the spawn of the devil to you at first. Just give it a few <laughs> minutes. And, uh, or, or, or give it a day or two, and you will change your mind. And they were right. People like Andy and Notco said, yes, it's going to feel all wrong and you'll feel vaguely unclean for the for a while but uh, uh after that you will you'll learn that you know it works pretty well for you yeah. i think that if you have a trackpad it really does yeah that that was certainly that feeling definitely hit me on the act of switching to the trackpad full time because except the fact that when i only really have space for my laptop itself the trackpad is the only good device that takes up such a little amount of space that I can have it on me at all times. But at work, I had been using a magic mouse for some time now, for quite a couple of months now. But I made the point that I wanted to use the the magic trackpad. I left the mouse on the desk, and then I found myself saying, no, it can't even be here. If I'm going to use the trackpad, I need to use the trackpad. So I just started leaving it in my backpack. And I've made that switch. For me, using the, the natural scrolling direction with a mouse with a scroll wheel... That's where it feels bad, and then when I go to my MacBook, which is one of the the last plastic ones before they went unibody, so it's got two-finger scrolling and not a lot of gestures beyond that. But anyway, the scrolling on that, the natural scrolling, feels fine as soon as I get used to it, but the problem is when I go back and forth from my desktop machine with my mouse and my laptop, and then my laptop with the mouse, too, it's all... I don't know. I think, I think with more time, I'll probably make progress, but... I don't like it on the desktop, I know that much, and I do like it on the laptop, but I keep forgetting it's there. <laughs> I, I think you're making a good point there, Nathan, because the um, there's a cost to from a UI standpoint and, and just from a you know kind of a cognitive standpoint of us having to switch contexts in our head in terms of, of what the, the user interface is for something as basic as the operating system. And... Mm-hmm. When we have to think about stuff, how do I do this on something as basic as scrolling or stuff like that, then I I think in some ways the promise of the Mac is not really working for us. And there's, that's one of the, I think one of the issues that the, that that Lion brings up, you know, kind of one of the bigger meta issues that, that, that it brings up is that it's one thing for folks who are new to the Mac and are buying, say, for example, a MacBook Pro or, a, or, or an Air or something like that. They're not, they're not dealing with any older stuff. They're not making that kind of context switch in their head. But for those of us who are, it seems to me that, that Apple has... Sorry to be so anthropomorphic here, but... Uh, you know, it, it's like Apple has is stealing our processor cycles for their benefit, not for ours. 
you kind of you kind of said this at the at the very start of that. It was your initial point to jump off from that. If you have to if you have to think about the basic interactivity with the operating system, then it's wrong. But it's not just that we have to think about it on its face. It's more the fact that we have to undo double digit years worth of experience. And you know whether that's good or bad is left up to the individual. But it's not that what they're doing is inherently wrong so much as it is such an established muscle memory for us. Uh, we, we haven't even talked about reverse scrolling yet. Uh. <laughs> <sighs> Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And th- th- that's just kind of like, I, I, I know I always go through the paces cause I'm the only one at work with lion. And that's because I'm, I'm in this community. I'm fully a part of this. I jumped on it day one. And whenever I go help anybody else, depending on if it's their laptop, if they have an external mouse or anything like that, I always get caught up in the reverse scroll- scrolling problem because I've left the default of up as up as pushing the content up. Uh, I leave the default on for Lion. But it's I, I'm at the point where if I make a mistake, I just start scrolling in the opposite direction and then I'm fully entrenched into their input method. I'm fully entrenched into how they're doing things and I don't have this problem anymore. I don't know. I, I guess I'm just saying that I'm in the middle grounds and I don't have any problem with either side. I don't know if this is true or not, but um, apparently there was an experiment that was done where you can actually, like, there are there's like a set of glasses that will flip everything, like down is up, up is down, and you put it on and you're so disoriented and you can't do anything, but gradually you sort of learn how to do stuff. And a- after a few days... Of, of constantly wearing these things your your brain just does the automatic switch and then you're just you're, you're fine and then when you take those glasses off you're completely disoriented again so i think the problem is not so much that um that apple changed it but that people are sort of forced to go between systems that have have lion doing it one way and then they have to go back to uh, snow leopard systems that are doing it the other way and just the the cognitive load of actually trying to do that switch back and forth back and forth is the problem not necessarily that the 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 reverse direction is is inherently wrong yeah i mean i I will eventually upgrade my my desktop machine to lion run it full time At, at, at which point all my machines will be running Lion. All, all my regularly used machines will be running Lion, and uh, that context switch will be will be eliminated for me. And and it, but for now we're in that cranky period. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of funny to draw that contrast with the fact that when uh, when the iPhone and iPad really started hitting their heyday, that people were talking about. Look at the evolution of the iPod. It was the click wheel that physically that the the jog wheel physically moved which eventually became this purely touch surface where when you tap on it on a particular item and push in it acts as the button it represents but otherwise it's a full touch canvas that you just you just trace a circle on to eventually becoming a fully touch screen interface with one physical button that has a very very dramatic use it doesn't it doesn't have any app interactivity it just has dramatic functional use to the device where this this was just a blanket switch. It was just one minute your operating system, your your input is scrolling in one direction. The next minute, it's the next. And with these inevitable transition periods between not only ourselves but anybody else we interact with, that we we are in this unfortunate middle ground right now. But there's nothing else you can do in the the whole world where when you have a when you control the entire evolution of devices, they made that gradual that a uh, gradual change. Plus, let's face it. 
people don't like change. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, and, and the get off my lawn feeling is not limited to people who are, uh, you know, in their 60s or 50s or, or 40s. I've, cer- I've certainly met a lot of 20-year-olds who, when you try to face them with chains, they're like, ah, get off my lawn. And so uh, so a lot of the stuff, I mean, I, I was reading the Macworld forums yesterday after Chris Breen wrote that article, and there were there, there was a guy who who's like, well, let's face it, Lion is the worst piece of crap Apple has ever put out. And I was thinking to myself, well, first of all, you lack historical per- perspective because I could I could show you much bigger pieces of crap that Apple has put out in the past. But objectively speaking, no, Lion is not the biggest piece of crap they put out. It's not even a piece of crap. It's it's actually a pretty pretty you know nice operating system. It's just really different, and this guy is having problems with its differentness. So I wanted to you know before we end the show i wanted to touch on steve jobs uh, the big news of this past week is that steve jobs tendered his resignation from apple and he's now the chairman of the board and and still an apple employee but now tim cook is the ceo and i just sort of wanted to get you know everyone's take on that uh, steve is unique there's no doubting that but he's also been sick for a long time now and apple has been his baby for a very 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 long time and so they put a succession plan into place and they executed that uh, succession plan and they put tim cook in charge they put him so much in charge in fact that yesterday they decided to give tim a set of golden handcuffs of a million restricted shares of stock, which vest in two five-year increments. So they expect that Tim is going to stick around. At yesterday's valuation, those million shares were worth $383 million. So they expect that Tim is going to stick around until 2021 if he wants his whole bonus. That kind of stuff doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen unplanned. And so that tells me that there is a great deal of confidence within all parts of Apple, all parts of the Apple executive suite, in Tim Cook's ability to lead the company. He's been effectively leading the company during Steve's several absences uh, and medical leaves. You certainly can't say that that the, the company's done badly under his uh, stewardship. The stock price has, has done nothing but go up. Market share keeps going up. They keep coming out with one hit product after another. So uh, Steve transitioning his role, I think, is going to make no, no difference at all in the day-to-day plans. And since Apple's been known to work ahead... Uh, in terms of their own strategic plans for years at a time, you know, three, four, five years uh, ahead, I'm guessing that the things that, that Apple would, would, have, would be doing now, uh, will be doing in the next few years, won't really be much different from Tim at the wheel rather than Steve. Being a part of the community as much as you have been, do you have any particular anecdotes specific to Steve Jobs or just generally Apple executives at a, as a whole? You know, uh, 
one of one of the things I I regret is I've met virtually everybody from the original Mac team except for Steve Jobs. You know, he he's always been a a, a pretty private individual and he's not out there cruising and schmoozing much. So, I don't really have have stories about Steve. And even then, you know, oddly enough, even though I've covered Apple, you know, as a journalist for so long, unless you've worked there or unless you've worked on staff for, you know, one of the ma- uh, the the major magazines, as a contributing editor for Macworld, I was I was still essentially a freelancer even though I was on the uh the masthead. Apple is such a difficult company to, to to work with as a journalist. They don't want to talk to you. When they do talk to you, they are extremely programmed. They will they choose a very small subset of journalists that they will talk to you on a regular basis. And those people are people like Walt Mossberg from the Wall Street Journal and David Pogue in the New York Times and Andy Anatko. And they'll talk to the folks from Macworld. Although not, they will not give the you know even MacWorld as much uh, as much access as they might give to uh, say David Pogue, so they can be very difficult to deal with. And so, stories, the stories that you want to be able to tell, are are thinner on the ground than you might think. There's the stories that you don't want to tell, like well Apple wouldn't talk to me on this occasion, you know, but those really aren't aren't fun stories at all. Like many other things, metaphorically speaking, many of those uh, many of those stories are down there in Cupertino, locked up in Cupertino, like so much else. <laughs> well, we we've seen some of those coming out over the past week. Certainly, some former we, we've seen some stories from former Apple employees, th- their own personal Steve stories, come out. I, I read a real fun story about a guy who said he was you know years ago. He was working at a cubicle in the middle of uh, of a building uh, in Cupertino, and it was towards the end of the day, and he decided to go out and go to the cafeteria. And uh, he walked out of his building and walked across the quad to the cafeteria. And it was the first time he'd felt sun on his skin all day because he'd gotten there really early, and it was pretty late in the day. And so he just kind of put a grin on his face closed his eyes and just walked across the quad by himself just enjoying the sunlight on his face he knew pretty much just how many steps it was to the cafeteria and so he opens his eyes just when he's about to hit, when he knows he's about to hit the cafeteria door and Steve Jobs is there gritting at him holding the door open for him and it was just a just a just a cool little little moment that I don't, I don't the guy didn't mention whether or not they actually said anything to it to one another, but I, I just think it's it, it, it's a nice little human moment. Yeah, it was it was so scant on details, but all the details that he picked were important, and you know that that's the the emphasis of writing because I, I remember. You basically did it exactly the same way that he did. There was you, you. You put a lot more into describing what he must have felt to be out in the courtyard, to actually be out of the, uh, you know, he, not, he wasn't even at a window. He was outside in the courtyard and just taking it all in. But that was that was exactly the same thing I thought and felt when I was reading it. It was a very short. It was very well written, and it was a very. It was just a really good article. 
all things considered. I think we're going to see more of those sorts of remembrances of Steve, but let's not forget the guy's not dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's it, it's kind of it's kind of funny that I started off the episode in the same way that I said corporate eulogy. These are all these are all such significant posts that in any other time you would be talking about somebody that just passed away, and that's not the case here. But that's this this is the way people are choosing to express themselves. Yeah, the fact that we you know we all call him Steve, but none of us know him. <laughs> um, we don't. We don't typically do that with people, you know? I mean, we talk about the president or we talk about Obama, but we're not talking about Barack. We uh, don't talk about Steve and Bill. We talk about Balmer and Gates. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. But it's always Steve. And uh, he's he's become such a indelible figure to, to many of us, and he's changed so many of our lives that it's easy i think to sometimes to forget that we don't know him you know many most of us have never even met him i would also recommend to you an article written by my colleague glenn fleischman that came out uh, i believe yesterday in the seattle times where he talked about how steve jobs and apple changed his life and i, I recommend it really highly it was it was a beautifully written piece glenn's a, a terrific writer and he said a lot of the things that, that I felt, but did a better job of it. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely toss a link to that in our show notes. All right. Well, uh, I, I want to thank you, uh, Tom, Mr. Negrino, for agreeing to. <laughs> you, had to you had to get that in one, ep- one I, part in the episode, yeah, didn't you? a little bit. <laughs> for being on the podcast. It's, it's just been a really a, sort of a fascinating look at your career and, and the history of Apple. Um, and uh, and I, I hope that we can get you back on in the future. I'd be happy to come back. This has been fun. And thanks so much for inviting me, especially as I, I guess I'm, I'm one of your inaugural special guest so yeah, you are you are our first guest i feel i do feel special then <laughs> so thanks so much for having me um oh. uh let me uh plug myself if if you don't mind uh any oh absolutely yeah. anyone who wants to follow me on twitter it's at negrino and that would be spelled n-e-g-r-i-n-o if you really have to you can look at my website which i you know i haven't changed in so so very long that would be negrino.com. And, of course, I'm also available at Facebook at facebook.com slash negrino. Uh, Are you on Google Plus? I am on Google Plus, and uh, I'm pr- probably, I'm sure I have, have kind of the usual, probably Negrino is my, my, uh, my name there. I am, I'm iffy about Google Plus. I, I, I'm, I'm still not entirely convinced that it's, that it's all that. Uh, although I do like the fact that they add, added the ignore capability in the last few days. Yeah, Nathan was saying that he liked <laughs> he liked that on the last one because uh, he wants to follow people but not actually read what they're saying. <laughs> Only certain people. <sighs> Certainly certain people. <laughs> I'm with you, Nathan. <laughs> so thanks so much for having me. I really do appreciate being well, here. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah, you very thank much you. For, for, for coming on. Uh, this has been the Ask Different Podcast. You can find us on iTunes by searching for Ask Different Podcast. 
Our show notes and RSS feed are available at podcast.askdifferent.net. We'd like to hear from you, so please email us at podcast at askdifferent.net. Thanks for listening.